Chapter 2 Many people, perhaps most people, have a quiet belief in God. It's often a strong belief, but extremely vague in detail. As such, it would be a firm faith in an unknown God, and one who perhaps cannot be known. But along with this, there's often a secret desire to know him. Maybe for this reason, paperbacks will sell in large numbers bearing a title such as Knowing God, or The Knowledge of the Holy, or Knowing the Face of God. The reader may buy and open such a book with high expectations, and yet some weeks later admit with regret that it's failed to satisfy. We still do not really know God. Perhaps the title was misleading, promising more than any author can supply. In reality, the face of God has never been glimpsed, except for a few brief years when the people of Galilee and Judea believed they saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A knowledge of the holy is surely beyond the reach of earthly imperfection. And knowing God in any practical sense seems quite impossible when he's invisible and presumably infinite and eternal and moves in realms inaccessible to humankind. We must be honest. To know God as I know my children or my friends or my wife is quite beyond me. On this earth, Jesus alone has claimed in truth to know God. I know him, he said, for I come from him and he sent me. Neither Moses nor Job nor Paul nor any other Bible writer claimed this. As for us, our hearts and minds remain clouded by our humanity and our ungodliness. We're not heavenly but earthly people. Are we then to despair of really knowing him? Must we abandon all thought of knowing him even a little? Someone has said that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. But a little knowledge only becomes dangerous when misused. A little knowledge of God would surely be a wonderful thing. Unable to fathom the vast expanse of the universe, we still appreciate the beauty of the stars. Unfamiliar with the ocean depths, we still enjoy the breaking waves. To know him a little would be far better than not knowing him at all. An awareness of the living God is always tinged with wonder, wistfulness and awe. A genuine encounter has usually left a man or woman humbled and sometimes unnerved and seriously shaken. In fact, the more we know of him, the more we feel our ignorance. The Bible says, Look, these are just the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? And yet a little knowledge is far more satisfying than none. Indeed, for the time being, it may be all we need. 
I don't understand exactly how my car works, but I know enough to drive it safely. I can't tell how a radio picks up airwaves, but I know enough to find a station I'd like to hear. The little we do know will often hint at further possibilities consistent with that knowledge. Finding out when my great-grandfather was born and married and had children, I'll expect other details of his life to be consistent with those facts. And knowing a little about something or someone may give us a deep affection for what we know. Although ignorant of many things concerning my hometown, my language and even my own family, I know enough to love them, to appreciate them and to be confident of learning more. All this suggests that the little we know of God is valuable and could well increase. Slowly, or perhaps suddenly, I become aware of him. At first, like a small child introduced to an uncle I've never met, I feel shy and insecure. Hardly daring to raise my eyes, I wait for him to speak. But he has a welcoming smile and a kind voice. He seems friendly. Gently he puts me at ease, taking an interest in my doings. He tells me about himself, winning my confidence and then my affection. Before long, I'm willing to speak up for him and even to suffer scorn and mockery for his sake. Eventually, I'm happy to declare, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. So we may progress from shyness at first, through warm confidence, to fierce loyalty, increasing in the knowledge of God. We encourage one another. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. You will never know everything about the creator of the universe. And yet you may know some things about him that are true. If they're true, you can depend upon them with your life. If, on the other hand, I ignore what can be known of him, the fault is surely mine. Indeed, we are justly warned, some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. In our search for the living God, we'll certainly attempt our honest best. But how far is that likely to take us? What if God himself does not wish to be found? What if he has no need of us, or no desire for us. If he resolved to remain hidden, he could surely do so, and all our efforts would be in vain. Do we have any reason to suppose he will help us in our quest? Does he wish to communicate with us at all? For several thousand years, people have asked this question and consistently reached the same conclusion. After all, in the stillness of the evening, it's not a remote or unfriendly being whose presence comforts and uplifts. In troublesome circumstances, it's not an inscrutable and uncommunicative deity 
who inspires a gentler and kinder approach to life. There are many ways of communicating. The whole of creation proclaims the glory of God. Jesus himself was always talking, explaining, answering, teaching. And a sensitive conscience which speaks for God in each of us will say as much as we will let him say. When we're most receptive to his revelation, he's a God who reveals himself. He communicates, he responds to those who seek him. The Bible writers did not think it foolish to go in search of God. Seek the Lord and his strength, they said. Seek his presence continually. Indeed, as a matter of urgency, we should seek him lest the opportunity be lost. Seek the Lord while he may be found, they said, and call upon him while he's near. What surprised them more was the realisation that he himself is watching and waiting for us to make a move. God looks down from heaven on the children of mankind to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Then one of the Bible writers became convinced of something even more unexpected. Looking at the history of tribes and nations in the world, he found good reason to believe that God fixed beforehand the exact times and limits of the places where they lived. And there was a specific reason for this. So they would seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, although he's not far from every one of us. Our own experience surely bears this out. In every nation we see people restless and disillusioned with the way things are. Unsettled where we live, unhappy with our generation, dissatisfied with our limits of time and place, we look for something beyond what we can see and hear and touch. It's our frustration with the world we know that leads us to seek for something higher and better to grope and stumble as best we can towards whoever or whatever may be there. But are we then doomed to seek forever, restlessly, hopelessly and without success? Or have our circumstances been planned by God with this specific purpose, that we may seek him and find him and so come to rest? If that's the case, then our greatest tragedy would be to seek him all our life and never finally track him down. It's imperative that we find him. Indeed, our personal safety depends upon it. Drowning in a lake, you struggle for a breath of air, and if you cannot take it, you will die. Bitten by a snake, you race to find some antidote, and if you do not get it, you will die. So the Bible writers urge us, seek the Lord and live. Experience led them to believe that whoever truly seeks him will find him. Moses was so certain of this that he could promise his people, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
Jesus was so sure of it that he promised his followers, Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. All this gives us no reason for despair and much cause for hope. Indeed, if I'm truly seeking him, I can be sure to find him seeking me. A good shepherd will go looking for a lost lamb. In the end it is found, not because the lamb knew the way, but because the shepherd knew the way. We have strong grounds to believe that God exists, that he wants us to seek him, and indeed that he strongly desires us to find him. But how, in practical terms, will he help us in our quest? On a cloudy day, you may put on hiking boots and head up a valley, not knowing exactly what lies ahead. Climbing steadily, you sense there are mountains all around, but so covered in mist that no one can tell where they might be or how high they are. Later, the weather clears a little and you begin to glimpse the majestic beauty and also the steepness of the way. Many a spiritual journey begins like this with enthusiasm, but then starts to falter as difficulties loom ahead. Like the highest peak, the Most High God remains invisible, always out of sight and out of reach. We can't see or touch him. We believe he's there, but many things about him remain unclear. What exactly is he like? How does he feel about human beings? Is he angry with us? Does he like us? Are we a disappointment to him? Would he prefer to forget about us altogether? Does he perhaps feel sorry for us, or even want to help? We would certainly appreciate some help. The spinning planet we call home is troubled and disordered by terrible famines and disasters, by incessant wars and epidemics. So neglected does it appear that some might think it a God-forsaken place. Has its maker simply abandoned the old machine to run down and disintegrate with no attempt at maintenance or repair? Are we left to suffer the consequences of our human ignorance and folly with no help or comfort, no guidance or direction? Imagine for a moment that you are the creator. You've designed and made a world for people to live in. Like you, they can see and hear and think and remember. They have a creative intelligence like your own. In fact, they're by far the best thing you ever made. But their world has gone wrong and they suffer pain and terrible distress. Down there on the surface of the planet are millions of them trying to make contact with you talking to you, thanking you, offering gifts, asking for guidance and pleading for your help. Is it likely that, as an inventor, you'd take no further interest in your best invention? Are you content for it to disintegrate and fail? If only for the sake of your reputation, you'd surely wish to use your knowledge of its workings to attempt a permanent repair. And if, 
as those tiny humans have reason to believe, you're greater and better than they are, you'll care about their world even more than they do, and have compassion on their crying need. But two enormous difficulties lie in your way. Firstly, the world is a single planet, and the problems it faces are global in extent. Many of its inhabitants are not seeking to solve those problems, but rather to make them worse. Exploiting human weakness and promoting conflict for their own advantage. Given a choice, in fact, very few would prefer heaven to earth. Only a small minority would want to change the way things are if it meant giving up what they have. How can you mend the machine when mankind in general prefers it the way it is and will not want your help? You might make a unilateral decision to halt all disease, decay and death. But if you did, the world's tyrants and dictators would simply remain in lusty health to exploit and oppress the rest of us forever. The world can't be put to rights until all its inhabitants want it put right. Only then will it stay right. But how could human nature, on a global scale, without exception, be so radically and completely changed? Secondly, and more immediately, there's a problem of affinity. You fill the heaven of heavens while they are minute human animals on the surface of the earth. How would you communicate with them? Their understanding and experience is so limited. You might awaken the conscience and imagination of some who are unusually sensitive. You might speak audibly to prophets, or appear in dreams and visions to seers. But there remains one enormous problem. You're an infinite spiritual being, whilst they struggle to survive in a solid material world. Severely restricted by laws of gravity, energy, motion and mass, they cannot come to you. They can only beg you to come to them. Many times indeed, their heartfelt cry is for the Lord God to visit and redeem his people. And why should he not do such a thing? You could go and live among them, wear their clothes, visit their homes, talk with them in their language, help them with their problems, explain things of which they are entirely ignorant. You could prepare the world for a day when it might be mended and put right and at the same time separate those who want it mended from those who do not. If this is a possibility, no one should be so foolish as to reject it out of hand, especially as evidence exists to suggest it really happened. For a short while, God became visible. He became human. He was born as a baby and grew up as a boy. People called him Jesus of Nazareth. They also called him the Son of God. 
But why did they think of him in those terms? Jesus told his followers, I have come down from heaven. Now that's a very strange thing to say. Those aren't the words of someone who was simply a good teacher, or even a wonderful man. They're the words of someone who claimed to be a heavenly being. If a man says, I have come down from heaven, there are three possibilities. He's either deliberately lying, or suffering a mental delusion, or telling the truth. Nothing about Jesus would lead us to suppose he was a liar or a crackpot. Many people who knew him were convinced and openly affirmed he is the image of the invisible God. In him, they said, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. They had no doubt about it. The infinite God really did become incarnate. He was embodied. He became a man and lived on earth. But how does this help us? It means that if we want to know what God is like, we can simply look at Jesus and inquire, what was Jesus like? And that's a question easily answered. We know exactly what he was like, because those who knew him best have told us. They shared a house with him, walked long roads with him, ate their meals with him, climbed hills and mountains with him. They went fishing with him, attended weddings, dinners and funerals with him. For a period of three years they spent all their days and nights with him. He spoke their language, met their families, saw their doubts and hesitations, heard their hopes and fears, helped them with their difficulties, and explained to them day by day things they did not know. The world they lived in was as shocking and chaotic as it is today. People were as distressed and perplexed then as they are now. It was to Jesus they turned for information and advice. To him they appealed for rescue from dark occult powers. To him they cried for safety in time of mortal danger. To him they turned for help when no one else could do a thing. He went from place to place, putting right whatever had gone wrong, straightening bent limbs, restoring blind eyes, opening deaf ears, driving out evil spirits, enabling the severely paralysed to walk, teaching the ignorant, forgiving the guilty, transforming the corrupt, and even raising the dead to life. There was no problem he could not solve, no sorrow he could not relieve, no personal tragedy he could not reverse and overcome. In every situation he knew exactly what to do. Peter, at his wit's end, confessed, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets. In a crisis at a wedding his mother Mary simply told the stewards, Do whatever he tells you. Those who knew him best had learned to trust him most completely.
What can we learn from this? If Jesus had added to the troubles of the world, or if he'd been indifferent to them, we might suspect that our Creator is unconcerned about our anxieties, our adversities, and our most desperate needs. Yet Jesus committed himself to solving the kind of problems we all face. He was concerned and able and willing to put things right. That's the kind of God we need, and according to the evidence, the kind of God we have. Knowing what he can do and did, our greatest wisdom will surely be to trust him with the doing of it, in his way and in his time. When a complex machine breaks down, the person best qualified to mend it will be the one who designed and built it. With his extraordinary ability to repair human beings, Jesus could do what we would expect of a creator. That's the definite impression we have from those who wrote about him. But are their writings reliable? Is the evidence they offer entirely trustworthy? We must do some more research. The four writers of the documents we call the Gospels were among the most intelligent people of their day. We can be certain of that. At a time when few were well educated, they had learned to write extremely well. What's more, they knew what they were writing about. Matthew was himself a disciple of Jesus, and so was John. Mark probably wrote down what Peter told him, and may also have been present on many of the occasions he recounts. Luke is concerned to tell us he recorded the testimony of reliable eyewitnesses. All four took great care with details such as numbers, names and places. There's no boastfulness or hype, no undue excitement or obvious exaggeration. Nothing but a simple factual account of what was said and done. The incidents they describe had been witnessed by many people and most of what they said was common knowledge. They clearly believed their report to be accurate and true. So did their friends. Some took the trouble to copy out what they'd written, every word by hand. If their contemporaries had not confirmed what they said, the gospel narratives would not have survived. If the second and subsequent generations had not been equally convinced, those pages would never have been preserved or further copies made. These eyewitness accounts from Galilee and Judea bring us face to face with a most unusual person. To his generation, Jesus was undoubtedly an enigma. At first, his disciples were bewildered, and the more they discovered about him, the more bewildered they became. What sort of man is this? they asked. He was quite unlike anyone else. First, there was the curious affirmation by both Mary and Joseph that their baby came from God, without human intercourse. Then came his extraordinary ability to heal, not just some diseases, but any disease at any time, with a simple word or a touch. He could ignore gravity, 
stop the wind, wither a fig tree, change water into wine, replace a severed ear, and instantly multiply fish and bread. Crucified, dead and buried, he walked out of his tomb alive and well. To say he was unique is an understatement. There had never been anyone remotely like him. In his personality, the men and women around him saw absolute goodness, purity, unselfishness and honesty. With no trace of human nature's darker side, he was at all times loving, compassionate, sensitive, inspiring and uplifting. By all accounts, he was a perfect man. In fact, the only fault anyone could find in him was this. You, being a man, make yourself God. And if that was the truth, how could it be a fault? We should not suppose that people in those days were unduly gullible. Among them were many, such as Thomas, who refused to believe without convincing proof. Seeing it, they were then totally convinced. Jesus was a very public figure, and everyone knew what he was doing. When his disciples recorded details of people and times and places, they were not passing on wild rumours or fanciful tales heard second or third hand about incidents far away. Peter said, we are witnesses of all that he did. John affirmed, we have seen his glory. These men, declaring what had happened, would lay down their lives rather than deny the truth of it. Ordered to speak no more about Jesus, they insisted, we cannot stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. Several times they were arrested and imprisoned. One of them was put to death and another prepared for execution. But still they would not keep quiet. It was true and important and must be made known. Perhaps you doubt this talk of miracles. That's understandable. Be aware, however, that those present at the time were perfectly clear about it. They'd seen what happened. They recorded it in detail and insisted on it at cost of liberty and life. 